This uh, passage of scripture is very striking. If you notice uh, there at the top of the page in verse uh, 29, there's a little tiny A. You see the little tiny A? That little tiny A directs you down to the bottom of the page. And it says Isaiah 13.10. Isaiah 13.10. So we'll come back here in a minute, but we want to go left now to Isaiah 13.10. Because this is a quote from this. Isaiah 13.10. And that's going to be on page 1079. And I want to pick it up. Uh, on the previous page, actually, and that is verse 6, Isaiah thirteen six. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. And here's the quote. Verse 10, the stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the, of the ruthless. I will make man scarcer than pure gold, more rare than gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Now, when you hear those words, you think of the end of the world, don't you? That sounds exactly like the end of the world. But it was the end of the world for some people but not for most people. And this has already happened. Let's see, how can I possibly say that? Look down at verse 17. See, I will stir up against them the Medes who do not care for silver and have no delight in gold. Their bows will strike down the young men they will have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with compassion on children. Babylon, the jewel of the kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. You see what we've just read? What we've read about was the eclipse of the Babylonian Empire. For them... 539 B.C. For them, 539 B.C. was the end of the world. Think of it. They were the most powerful empire in the world at that time. They had succeeded and replaced the Assyrians. They controlled much of the world. And they ruled over Israel and Judah. They were very, very powerful. And they had the greatest military the world had ever known. They had very powerful defenses, better than some kind of uh, Star Wars missiles to shoot down rockets coming in. 
They had an impregnable city. Nobody can get in here. That's why Belteshazzar, who's the one who saw the hand writing on the wall and was terrified, that's why they were secure. That's why they're in there drinking themselves drunk, having a feast, defiling God's holy uh, instruments of worship that had been stolen from Jerusalem when they had destroyed the city and the temple. They're so secure. And yet, in a moment, their world came to an end because the Medes later succeeded by the Persians, and we call them the Medo-Persian Empire. They were civil engineers, and they figured out a way to dry up the river going through the city. And they simply marched right in. May have been a little muddy, but they went right inside the city and they overthrew it and they killed the king and they killed most people except for women and children and Daniel was preserved alive. We know that. So what are we really reading about here? This is language that is sometimes called apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. What does that word mean? I've defined it before. It means to unveil. It would be like um, a big statue being put in downtown Texarkana right at the end of the, uh, of the um, two-state, what is it is, uh, what's the boulevard? State line. State line Avenue. And there's this big statue to somebody. I don't know who that would be. But nobody knows what it's going to look like except the sculptor and they come in in the middle of the night and they put it up and they cover it with a big piece of canvas. And the next day they have a ceremony. And the governor of Texas and the governor of Arkansas are both here, one on one side, one on the other. And then they do what? They unveil it. They pull that canvas off and everybody looks and says, what's that? Because it's modern art. Anyhow. <laughs> so... The point is, uh, what you call that pulling of that veil off or that canvas sheet over that statue would be an apocalypse. It is an unveiling. It's revealing. And in the Bible, language is used to pull back the curtain and let us see what's really going on. What's really going on in America today? If we could pull that curtain back, you'd be shocked. Because there are at least two and maybe more very powerful principalities warring against each other and making everybody go crazy. In other words, there's something supernatural at work in 2022 in our nation and in all the nations of the world. And in 539 B.C., what happens is the veil is pulled back. And we're given a little glimpse of what's really happening. What's really happening to Babylon in the year 539 B.C. is the end of the world as they know it. It's the end of the world as they know it. That's why it's described as the day of the Lord. For them, it was the day of the Lord. Does that mean there are no other days of the Lord? Of course not. This is a pattern repeated throughout history. And if you, if you look at it carefully where he says... In verse 10, the stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. What is that? That's a picture of dark ages. You know, we sometimes call periods in history dark ages. And so what is 
Jesus saying to us in Matthew 24 when he quotes this passage of scripture about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple. He's letting us know that what's going to happen is that as soon as the Romans have come, remember that the Jews rebelled against the Roman Empire in 66 AD, and four years later, the Romans conquered the city of Jerusalem and knocked down every single solitary stone of the Jewish temple so that the only things left are the foundations. And so Jesus is saying, well, wonder what's going to happen after that. And he's telling us exactly what's going to happen to that. What happened to the Jewish people after that? They went into the period of the Jewish Dark Ages. If you compare this with Luke's account in Luke 21, Jerusalem is surrounded by the Roman armies, and then they go into exile. Do you know that over a million Jewish people perished in that war? Do you know that untold thousands of Jews were led into captivity, their wives, their children, they were led into captivity. And I've told you before in my meager coin collection, I have a silver coin. It's a Roman coin. And on one side it says, Judea weeping. And it's a picture of a woman underneath the menorah weeping. And that coin of mine was stolen from the Jews in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the Jewish temple and took off all that gold and silver and carted it off to Rome. I'd love to have a gold coin, but of course I couldn't afford that. But it's amazing. What happened to the Jewish people after that? They went into dark ages. They went into the eclipse. They disappeared from history, not totally, but substantially in terms of being any kind of political force. They wander throughout the known world. They end up in the steppes of Asia. They end up in Africa. They end up all over the world, but no longer a free people, no longer a people of their own. And so what Jesus is saying is, what's going to happen after the temple is destroyed is that my people, the Jewish people, are going to go into an incredible eclipse that's going to be as terrifying to them as the destruction of Babylon was in 539 B.C. to the Babylonians. So that helps us understand what he's saying. And he talks about things being shaken. I want you to turn with me for a moment back again to the Old Testament. And I want us to look at the book of Ezra for a moment. The book of Ezra for a moment. And we discover that the Jewish people have gathered and they have begun to rebuild the house of the Lord. And what happens is, if you look at page 736, Ezra chapter 3, They've laid the foundation for the temple. That's in verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments 
and with trumpets and Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel, with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good, His love endures forever. Now, think about it. This is an amazing event. Israel has been in captivity under the Babylonians, and then God destroyed the Babylonian Empire in one night when they went into an eclipse in their dark ages. And then the Persians and Medes allow the Jews to return to their homeland. And so they begin to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And they have now taken the place where Solomon's temple once had been that had been destroyed on the ninth day of the Jewish month of. And they have now cleared out the rubble and they've laid the foundation. And so they're happy. Oh, this is wonderful. Oh, look, have you ever, have you ever been part of building a building and finally the slab has been poured? Well, they didn't use concrete, but the, but the slab has effect been poured. Now, you see, he says next there on page 736, And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now look at verse 12. Young people so happy. Oh, this is glorious. But the old fogies are there. <laughs> look at verse 12. But many of the older priests... And Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. Verse 13, no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Why are the old people crying? Why are they crying? They're crying because they remembered Solomon's temple, that beautiful, glorious temple that you read about in, in Kings and you read about in Chronicles. That glorious, beautiful temple had been utterly, totally, absolutely destroyed by the Babylonians who had taken off the gold and the silver to Babylon. And now the remnant has returned. And now the remnant has prepared the place to build another temple. And the young people are excited. This is wonderful. This is glorious. But the people who remembered Solomon's temple are wailing and weeping and they couldn't distinguish the sound. Now I want you to turn with me over to the book of Haggai. Haggai is one of the minor prophets and the three last prophets of the Old Testament. So turn with me if you will. Haggai chapter 2. If you go to Zechariah, as I did, you've gone too far. Now, page 1469, verse 1. On the 21st day of the 7th month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, and notice, how this fits right in with Ezra. He says, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? 
But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. You ever thought about fear? Fear is the devil's tool. God never tells us to fear anything or anybody but Him. And for Him, it's reverential awe. Do not fear, He says. Why? This is what the Lord Almighty says in a little while. I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desire of the nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. Now look at verse 9. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Now I want you to ask yourself a question. Did that happen? Think about it. The temple of God, built by Solomon, destroyed on the ninth day of Av. Hundreds of years later, the rebuilt temple... That was completed in 516 B.C. Hundreds of years later, that temple on the same day of the same Jewish month, the 9th of Ab, was destroyed by the Romans. So you ask yourself this question. Was Haggai a false prophet? Haggai told them that this small little temple you've built, replacing the glorious temple of Solomon is going to be a greater temple than the temple of Solomon. Now, you know what happened to that temple. Nineteen years before Christ, in the, at least in the Gregorian calendar, King Herod the Great went on a great remodeling program. And the only, that temple's remodeling program was only finished a few years before it was destroyed on the exact same day of the exact same month of Jewish calendar, the ninth day of Av in 70 AD. So how on earth could Haggai's prophecy possibly be true? Do you want me to tell you how? The Lord whom you seek, if you turn to the last book of the Old Testament, will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, in verse, chapter 3, verse 2, he says, uh, in verse 1, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you all are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, but who can endure the day of his coming? Now let's put this together. Was Haggai telling the truth? Was that a true prophecy of God? And the answer is absolutely. Why was the glory of the second temple greater than the glory of Solomon's temple? Because the Lord himself came to that temple and he walked in it and he drove out the money changers from it. 
The Lord Jesus Christ is God Almighty. And therefore, His presence is such that He comes with a greater glory to the temple than when the temple of Solomon had been dedicated. You remember back in the Old Testament when Moses dedicated the tabernacle, that the Shekinah glory of God came into that tabernacle and filled it so full that people couldn't go into it. The priests couldn't go into it. Do you remember that in, in the book of Kings, I think it's 1 Kings 6, when Solomon dedicated his temple, the Shekinah glory of God came down from heaven and so filled that house that no one could go into it? And do you remember that when they dedicated the second temple in 516 B.C., the Shekinah glory of God came down? No, you don't. Because the Shekinah glory of God did not come down on that second temple. The glory of God never filled the second temple at all. So how in the world could the second temple be greater than the first temple where the Lord himself had filled with his own glorious presence that temple? How could that be? Because the Lord himself came and tabernacled among us. The Lord Jesus Christ is almighty God. And when he came, when he walked the streets of Jerusalem, when he walked inside the temple, when he came there, he is the messenger of the covenant. He is the one who brings the glory of God. He is the anointing above all anointing. It's because the Lord Jesus Christ is the temple. And that tabernacle and that temple of, of Moses and of Solomon, they're only like a shadow. They're like a foreshadowing of things. You see, this is the deal if we think about it. God has always used symbols and signs and seals. Take, for example, the elements of the Lord's Supper. Is this bread really anything? Is this wine really anything? No, it's what they point to. They point to, point to a heavenly reality that the Lord Jesus Christ is here with us here today on September 4th, 2022. He's with us. And somehow or another mysteriously, because he died and rose again, these emblems, these elements, which left of themselves are nothing. They're meaningless. This has no meaning in itself. This has no meaning in itself. But with the power of the Word of God, with the power of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the tabernacle, who is the fulfillment of the temple, what He does is He enables you and me in a far more powerful way than any Old Testament priest, including Aaron himself. He enables you and me to feed on the heavenly manna that they could not eat of. We have an altar from which to eat, which those who serve the tabernacle and temple don't have a right to eat. See, what it is, is that, that the Lord Jesus is the one who comes. And when he comes to his temple, the glory of that temple became greater than anything Solomon had ever built or Moses ever constructed. Because the Lord himself, in flesh and blood, 
comes to the temple and he does what? He refines the sons of Levi. In effect, when you read this, and when you read what Jesus is quoting out of Isaiah 13, and you realize about the shaking of the powers of the world, you realize that happened in 70 A.D. Almighty God authorized the destruction of that earthly temple because it was worthless and useless. It had fulfilled its purpose. It had pointed to Christ. Now Christ has come. He is the one who is God in the flesh, tabernacling among us. And so what happens is, Matthew 24 focuses on the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple as the eclipsing of the old way of worship as the putting an end to it, as the stars falling from the sky, as the sun no longer shining. It is the end of Israel as a nation, independent of the nations of the world. It is the end of their way of worship, which compared to our way of worship was incredibly glorious. I mean, don't we crave things like incense? Don't we crave things like trumpets? All of the visual pomp and circumstance of the tabernacle and the temple has been replaced with something very simple in the church of the New Testament. Because New Testament worship is very simple. It's very bland. It's not showy. You can gather in your living room with two or three believers and worship the Lord, hear the Scriptures read and proclaimed, sing praises to God, and break bread. But the amazing thing is this. The glory of this latter house, says Haggai, is greater than the one that Solomon had. How can that be? It can be because of the Lord Jesus Christ who loves you and loves me, who gave himself up for us. He is the fulfillment of all that. And that is also for those who did not accept Christ as their Christ, as their Messiah. It was the beginning of a period of dark ages that is still going on today. Because it's only in Christ that the light of the world shines forth. It's only when a man or a woman comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ that God's Word becomes alive and a living Word. Without that, the Word is dark. There's a veil over people's eyes. They may be learned in all of the traditions of the elders. They may know Hebrew extremely well. They may know all of those things. But they can't see. Because a veil is over their eyes. But when somebody turns to the Lord, says St. Paul, that veil is removed. Then they can see clearly as they read what we call the Old Testament. They say, oh, this is Jesus here. How could anybody miss it? The point I'm making to you and me is this, summing this up. The coming of the Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah for the Jewish people and of Haggai and of Malachi for the Jewish temple and way of worship. And it results in a glorious liberty to spread the good news of the God of Israel among the Gentiles because he sends his angels, his messengers, to the four winds to gather his elect, which I think is a reference to the preaching of the gospel that comes. But for those who spurn it, they're left in chains of darkness, blindness, Inability to see. 
So I want you as we gather to take the Lord's Supper to remember this fundamental and profound truth. You have a right to consume something that the greatest people of the Old Testament were denied. Because as we receive the elements of the Lord's Supper in a mysterious way we cannot define, in a mysterious way that we cannot figure out exactly, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, the messenger of the covenant, who suddenly came to His temple, is here. And He's feeding you with Himself. You partake of God Almighty by the power of the Holy Spirit. How? In a way very similar that you partake of God through the preaching of the Word because He's present in it by the Holy Spirit. May we pray. Lord, would you bless us as we ponder these things. We thank you that we're not left in the dark, that our period of dark ages did not come as it came to the Jewish people who did not accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. But Lord, we live in this glorious time of privilege where you're still sending out your messengers to gather your elect from the four winds. Would you bless as we partake of these elements that in a mysterious way where Jesus himself lifts us up and seats us in heavenly places where he is at the right hand of the Father, that you would grant to us true communion with you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.